0: Footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mab Sky. Good evening, and welcome to Your Nightmares, where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. And tonight, we have a harrowing double feature for you by a guest author who has taken the noir world by a storm, Stephen J. Golds. Steve hails from Japan and is a poetry editor for Close to the Bone magazine. He is just about to release his second book, Always the Dead. Always the Dead is based on the true story about the disappearance of an aspiring Hollywood actress, Jean Spangler, and the man who loved her, a World War II vet named Scott Kelly. The story will zip you back to the decades where life was more real, more raw, and dare I say, more dark. If you enjoy the stories from this podcast, I think you'll really dig this novel. Stay tuned after the story where you'll discover how you can purchase Steve's new book and where to find him on social media. Tonight, Steve and Jay Golds will steep your senses in the minds of psychopaths where anything can and will happen. A short story and In an Unmarked Place were both originally published in the wonderful Bristol Noir magazine. Bristol Noir publishes high quality stories and I suggest you go and check them out. Of course, all the links are in the show notes. Now, sit back in a dark, dark space. Be sure to leave a light on somewhere, anywhere. If you experience nightmares afterwards, don't say I didn't warn you. But don't worry. I've got your hand. We're doing this together. There's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark, softly. A short story by Stephen J. Golds. This isn't a short story. It's a confession. You'll read it and think, wow, What a dark piece of fiction. Fucked up, but good dark prose. (laughs) I smile knowing that I'm showing you my real self, and you'll not even really know it. Some of you will read this, and then continue your day as usual. How deliciously stupid you are. Usually the ones I allow to glimpse the real me, they see me. And then they see nothing. So here I am. Enjoy the short story. The main point I'd like to make is the fact I've killed 19 people. 19. It's a tally that I'm proud of. Took a lot of time, a lot of effort. Not a lot of people can do what I do, and do it so damn well. I'm what your media calls a serial killer. You believe that we are a rarity, a freak of nature that appears once every blue moon and then gets caught by some ingenious police detective, the stuff of horror movies or poorly scripted television drama. That's complete bullshit. The thing is, we are everywhere. We are a minority, sure, but there are much more of us than you are led to believe. Where do you think all the missing people go? I'll give you a hint. They aren't missing. They just haven't been dug up yet. We only get caught if we're stupid or gluttonous. Ted Bundy? What a joke. Do you think the police or the media would come out and say the honest truth? That serial killers are everywhere and only 1% of us ever get caught? Of course not. The farmer doesn't want the sheep to get all scatterbrained and jumpy. That's what you are. Sheep. Mindless. Keep consuming. Keep working. Keep telling yourself everything is going to be okay. Could you imagine if they told you? There would be panic, outrage, fear. (laughs) You see, we hide and they let us hide. Like mother and father. They knew what I was when I was five years old. Pouring a can of gasoline into the fish pond, watching the idiot fish gulping at the murky surface like it was fire, or the time I cut the paws of my grandmother's pet terrier with razor blades because I enjoyed watching the little thing hobble around. I am the thing that no one wishes to speak of. As a teenager, all of that blood on my clothes and my mother very much wanted to believe it was a street fight. Needed to believe it was a street fight They taught me young my parents This was unacceptable That was bad. This is when you're supposed to smile. This is when you're supposed to cry You'll get in trouble for this people will hate you and fear you if you do that It was difficult to get the emotions correct at first. I laughed or cried at the wrong times inappropriate times It was complicated to gauge how much of a certain emotion I was to fake and when. My father tried to beat it out of me. He didn't know what it was he was attempting to flog out of me, but he tried. High school was the best acting studio. I observed the people there. Imitated them and their emotions, their facial tics. They taught me to hide in plain sight. Education, knowledge is power. Most of us have learned over a lifetime of trial and error to be careful, act the part, be smart. Hunting wouldn't be any fun if the deer could easily see you. Camouflage, it's vital. Have you ever seen a snow leopard in the wild? Not many people have. Do you know why? It's not because they aren't there. It's because they don't want you to see them. Obviously. We are like that. Snow leopards. I practice my smile in the mirror every morning. Have a solid handshake. Look you in the eye for that special amount of time that is deemed comfortable. I wear nice clothes, but nothing too flashy or memorable. Just nice enough to make that all-important good first impression. I'm an actor, and every day is a movie set. You are in my horror movie, and I am the director, the main star, and the writer. I deserve an Oscar, truly. I enjoy what I do. It's my life. It's who I am. Survival means continuation, and continuation comes from moderation and planning. I've never killed in the same area more than once. Choose all my victims at random. Nothing ever links me to the dead. The homeless man. The woman in the parking lot. The fry cook having a cigarette break in the alleyway behind his restaurant. The lovers in the parked car. I satisfy myself quickly, and then leave. Collect and Go I once drove two states over, just to stab a man walking his dog in the throat, and then drove home listening to the radio on low. If I could be sentimental, I wouldn't be sentimental. Don't collect trophies and don't leave a signature. That's for fools who secretly want to be stopped because they've been made to feel like they're broken, evil, guilty. They are idiots. Do you feel guilty when you eat a fish? Of course not. It's nature. I know it's nature. Natural. I'm a member of a minority. The next step in human evolution. The top of the food chain. You don't feel bad about that salmon you ate last week. And I don't feel guilty about you. It helps to be transient. Most of us are. The traveling salesman has it made. We'd all love that job. I've never lived in one place longer than a year. Vacations are great. I choose someone the night before my flight back home. Leave the local police scratching their heads at such a random act of violence. Smiling, satisfied as the plane takes off. Any chances of catching me dwindle with the shrinking cities and landscapes outside the airplane's window. I've killed a person in every country I've been to. Collect them like some people collect hotel ashtrays. Great holiday. Wish you were here. (laughs) Variation is the spice of life, isn't it? Third world countries are hunting grounds, the same way trophy hunters take safari trips to Africa. I've seen others there, walking the night streets of some faraway country, that glint of anticipation in their eyes. I'm sure they've seen me. We have given each other a small nod of acknowledgement at times. A wolf passing another wolf in woodland, on the hunt. A woman sat by a river once asked me why. I didn't know what to say to her. I told her it was a good question, and then I slit her throat. It's not a hunger, nor a thirst. It's more like defecation, a bowel movement, something that I need to do. I feel the urge and make plans to do what I need to do. I can't speak for others. The sex fiends and sadists, they're a different breed. I am a collector. I collect people and places and keep them within myself. A part of me always aches to the way you remember your past lovers, perhaps. People are more careful nowadays colder, guarded. It makes things a little more difficult. I enjoy that, however. I'm thinking about moving onto social media or literary magazines to find new and exciting possibilities. I'm sure there's someone out there reading this now that'll catch my interest. (laughs) Don't worry. I'll make it quick. You'll only see me for a split second, and then we'll both be gone. You'll be my number 20. In an Unmarked Place by Stephen J. Golds I was 16 and in high school when I first noticed Natalie. We didn't meet, I noticed her. Noticed her like you'd notice a scratch or mark on your skin. A graze that you would swear had not been there before. A small wound on your flesh that you couldn't stop picking at until it ripped open and bled thick and warm. Blood, like all things, waiting below the surface to breathe. I was walking with a small group of kids to English literature class, the first lesson of that day, the only class I still went to. I can't remember what exactly we were talking about, the bullshit conversation of adolescence. All those memories are hazy now, hazy except for Natalie, Natalie and the blood. I heard it, her a painful cry that ripped through the small talk of whatever it was we were laughing about. I glanced over towards the noise, and I saw her kneeling there, wailing, holding her bloody face and her bloody hands, praying before an altar. She had tripped on the cracked cement paving of the courtyard, fallen and smashed her cheek on the corner of the concrete steps that led into the English block. The world went silent. I walked over to her. I did not run. I just walked over. Cautiously. Like someone would approach an injured and snarling but beautiful animal. A wolf in a bear trap in Woodland. I held out the handkerchief my mother had stuffed into the pocket of my jeans the day she'd left home for good. Just in case, she'd said. Just in case. What the fuck that had meant I'd never known. A handkerchief. A cheap brown and white check handkerchief. It was the only thing my mother left me with when she walked out. Walked out and walked away. But that's a different story. And a different scar altogether. I held out the handkerchief to Natalie. I remember it hung from my hand, gently moving and swaying slightly in the breeze for what seemed like an empty minute. Without even glancing at me, She snatched it away and pushed it, crumpled to her face. Maybe she was embarrassed, or maybe she was just proud. I never found out, because I never asked. Even though I always wanted to. Natalie held the handkerchief to the gaping gash underneath her Irish-colored eye, trying to stop the bleeding, stem the flow. We both just stood there and stared down at the droplets of red on the gray concrete. I remember thinking that the blood on the steps looked like little rivers and pools of crimson. The handkerchief, bald to the wound, was like the head of a rose. It was like something from a biblical story. We were late for class. Neither of us said anything to each other. Standing there in the shade of the empty courtyard, not looking at each other, she handed me back the blood soak handkerchief and I stuffed it back into my jacket pocket. To this day, that brown stained hanky has always been with me. I keep it on my body at all times, close to my chest, close to my heart like it's a crucifix or a memento mori of our beginning and our end. Neither of us went to our classes that day Natalie went to the school nurse, and I went outside of school to have a cigarette. I sat down on an overturned garbage bin by some garages, the place where all the kids went to do the things that were forbidden for high school kids to do. I sat and watched the blue and gray smoke wash in front of my eyes like the incense my mother used to light around our apartment, and thought about Natalie. I couldn't exercise the image of her blood and tear-stained face from my mind. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen: A blood-soaked face of some kind of mortally injured angel. After that day, I can't recollect how we became close, but we did. Maybe I walked her home after school one day, or maybe I asked to copy her homework. I can't remember. It was long ago, too long ago now. The smaller details of it are now just smoky murmurs at the back of my mind, memories and hangovers, whispers of the good times within the shadows of the downs. But we became close, and we became close quickly. Natalie came from a broken home, like me. Perhaps that is why we got close. We were both unwanted products of dysfunctional families. We understood each other. Her father was a drinker and an animal, and her mother left when she was 12 years old as well. When my father was home, I made sure I wasn't. I was with Natalie. Natalie was with me. That's how we began. That's how we ended. Natalie was beautiful. She didn't know it, but she was. Beautiful like something else. It was a broken and used up kind of grace. A bouquet of rain-soaked flowers and silk ribbons laid to rest at the side of an empty lane where someone had died in a car wreck. The pink, fleshy scar that ripped along the side of her face only highlighted that beauty, and it was a constant reminder of how we met. How we collided into each other, like my handkerchief. Natalie had her own momenti more, and she wore the stigmata proudly like it was a tattoo of my name carved into the soft flesh of her features. She had eyes that didn't see you. They cut and sliced deep inside you like serrated blades. If you saw her walking, you would really think she was dancing, gliding, walking on water, and she was. She was. I can remember the very first time that I kissed her. I remember she tasted like a cocktail of soda, cigarettes, and cherry chewing gum. And her tongue slid over mine so delicately it felt as though something died and then was reborn. The first time I fucked her is sewn into the fabric of my consciousness. She was my first and my last. She ripped my virginity from my body like it was a skin. I wasn't her first. Not by any measure. But it didn't matter. We had something. And I was her last. We shared many summers doing nothing. Spent hours drinking cheap wine in the greenery of the park until we vomited. Sniffing glue until we saw red and blue flashes in our eyes. Smoking weed until it felt as though we had sunk into the freshly cut grass. Unmarked graves. Mostly we talked about nothing and said nothing. Like, I suppose, only lovers can. We would fuck in a field behind our high school, underneath a large oak tree with our initials carved into the bark. Sun and blood-soaked nostalgia. Summers rinsed away and decayed into years. We grew up. We got jobs. We caught different subways to work. The world surprised us with its brittle seriousness, and we surprised ourselves. We changed, and were changed. I remember the day we were drinking wine in her apartment and smoking a little weed, both a little bit drunk, both a bit high. Natalie had her head on my shoulder and her long blonde hair was tangling down my chest. I was tracing the edges of her scar with my fingertips. The television was on, and the volume was turned all the way down. We were listening to the sounds of the rain underneath the wheels of the cars passing by on the street below. She asked me to marry her. Through the sounds of the rain, she asked me. There was a heavy silence that crept into the room, stalking after her words like an animal with claws that suffocated the atmosphere. I didn't answer, I didn't say anything, and she never asked again. I wanted to say yes, but I didn't. I thought of my mother and said nothing. I was 22 when Natalie told me about the pregnancy. She didn't tell me until one evening when we were eating together at an Italian restaurant downtown. Celebrating a new job, she got gotten doing the photography for an online fashion magazine. She started weeping just after the main chorus had arrived. Thick, clear tears slid from her eyes and made gray stains on the white tablecloth. I scraped my chair next to hers and kissed the scar on her cheek, feeling the smoothness of it underneath my lips fleetingly and tasting the tears, hot and wet and tasting of her. I put my arm around her neck and held her close, breathing her into my lungs. A fucking Italian restaurant, downtown. That is where she chose to tell me. When she had to tell me, she had gotten pregnant. She wasn't sure if the child was mine. It could have been someone else's, an ex co worker's. She claimed they'd gotten drunk at a company party. They had only fucked once. It was a terrible mistake, but she'd gotten pregnant and she had the kid aborted. I am not a good enough wordsmith to write the words for the feelings that I felt then. Looking down at the soggy pasta on the plate in front of me, I suppose I don't need to. I'm sure most people have experienced the feeling, that feeling of your world rotting and falling apart around you. The drop of the gallows as you realize the reality that you'd witnessed. That you lived was nothing more tangible than a commercial on a cracked television screen. An all encompassing sensation of a suicide bomber walking into the very center of your world and blowing the whole fucking thing to a bloody paste. When she told me through the ugly crocodile tears, I remember I picked up the spoon from my plate as though it was a dagger and then placed it back down. I moved my water glass a few inches to the left and then back to the right. I scratched at my face, bit down on my lip, and put my hands underneath the table and squeezed them into fists. And then I walked out of the restaurant into a night that was darker and colder than the night had ever been before. She never came after me. I never expected her to. I was 35 years old and back in the city of my upbringing when I saw her again. She was on the subway holding hands with two little children who shared their mother's shocking blonde hair and green eyes. She looked so much older. The scar on her face had almost completely faded away, a sign that she'd buried me in her past as though I I was just another guy who'd fucked and disposed of her. I pulled the collar of my jacket up, put my face in my hands, and then got off at the stop after hers. I sat down on a bench, wheezing and waiting for the next train. The handkerchief choked in my clammy hand, waiting to catch tears that wouldn't come. I remember all this, Natalie, as I sit here at my dining table reading a newspaper. When I look away from the eyes in the grainy photograph underneath the headline... I'm squeezing the handkerchief in my fingers. I can't even recall taking it from my breast pocket. The body they'd found last week in Woodland had finally been identified, as I knew it would. I hope you enjoyed these dark, delicious tales. Now, a little bit about Steve and where to find him. Stephen J. Golds was born in London, but has lived in Japan for most of his adult life. He enjoys spending time with his daughters, reading books, traveling, boxing, and listening to Old Soul LPs. His novel, Say Goodbye When I'm Gone, was released by Red Dog Press in October of 2020, and his second novel, Always the Dead will be released by Close to the Bone Press January 29th which is this Friday you can find Steve's books by going to Amazon typing in Stephen J. Golds which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N J-G-O-L-D-S and the title Always the Dead while you're on Amazon be sure to click follow on Steve's author profile And check out his other books. You can also find Steve on Twitter at SteveGone58. Tweet him hello using the hashtag AlwaysTheDead. And again, all the links are in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dark Softly Tales. And until next week, shine bright, dark hearts.